If I start to pant really shallow, I'm creating an activation response. My breathing is changing my blood chemistry, and my blood chemistry is changing the whole sensations of my body, including which areas of my brain are active or inactive. Hello, this is Dr. Diva Nagula. Welcome to From Doctor to Patient, where our goal is to bring you topics of discussion that will educate you on the various healing modalities to help balance the mind, body, and spirit. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of From Doctor to Patient. This is Dr. Nagula here, and today I have the pleasure of having Edward Dangerfield all the way from Bali. And he is joining us this morning, and he is about 13 hours ahead of us, so it's really early morning for him. Uh, Edward Dangerfield is a breathwork, movement, and meditation specialist. He's trained in nervous system health, Chinese massage and pressure points, breathwork, nerve flossing, qigong, biofield energy healing, yoga, and meditation. Having been caught in an avalanche and suffering from PTSD, Edward went on to discover how to heal himself. Through his experience, Edward has developed a deep passion for using breathwork and movement to heal the nervous system. Edward is the founder of Biology of Breath and Breathwork Bali. Edward, thanks for joining us. Good morning to you. Thanks so much. It's an honor to be here. I appreciate the invitation. Absolutely. This is fantastic. I'm really looking forward to this. Um, so as I'm reading your bio, I'm thinking to myself, wow, I got to hear more about this avalanche. Tell, tell us a little bit more about that before we dive into the pearls, uh, pearls of, uh, of, of uh, breathwork. Yeah, thanks so much. I think some of us have had those really pivotal experiences in our lives, which have really changed the course and trajectory. And that was definitely one of the, the biggest for me. I was living and working in the mountains of Whistler in Canada for 15 years and uh, really enjoyed my time there and, and was profoundly involved in winter sports and uh, ski touring, specifically self-propelled ski touring. So I was out of the ski resort of Whistler, or I was off the back of the resort, essentially, behind where the lifts are, in an area that wasn't controlled by ski patrol. And I was skiing some fairly mellow terrain, but still kind of interesting. And uh, unfortunately, as, as fate would have it, the whole of the mountain decided to sort of stop moving oh, with me. No. And so, uh, <laughs> yeah, it was a really interesting experience. Something that's, you know, the ground under your feet being stable and then suddenly not being stable anymore is, is, is profound. And so I went for a bit of a ride, essentially like a near-death experience, which resulted in a lot of trauma. And then subsequently, a lack of completion of, of the trauma, a lack of completion of movement of the energy that mobilized to save my life resulting in, in ultimately in PTSD, what would be classified as PTSD or even potentially CPTSD. And so, yeah, that was the beginning of a, of a change in direction. I was like, okay, I'm going to have to figure this out. I mean, obviously you experienced some physical and emotional trauma. So I guess there was probably a period of time where you were just not getting better. And then at what point did you just like figure out that you really need to take a deep dive and figure out what to do to improve your health and physical well-being? Yeah, thank you. Things didn't get better for some time, like to be honest with you. But the, the tools that I had really were like very, very simple and, and I didn't understand the mechanisms that were at play within my human body. And so I started to drink and I, I was using alcohol to numb my pain. That'll only work for a certain amount of time until the body actually just says this isn't this isn't gonna work anymore. So right. I hit a real low point of depression and at the time I was really contemplating whether to continue living or not. 
And I think it was around that time that I made a choice. It was a, a very conscious choice where I was like, there's, there's going to be another way. And uh, I think it was that, that real low point was the turning point. And I just made a choice to reach out and get some quality help and support in a variety of different ways. And I was just like, you know, what? I'm, I'm going to pour everything that I have into learning how to heal myself. And I suppose part of it was a recognition that just I'm not okay. And, and that's okay, but I need to, I need to figure this out. Right. And then what's, so what exactly did you start doing to change things around for you? Yeah, I think was it, environmental was it, factor was one of, yeah. one of the biggest. It was just like, I was like, what is the best environment for myself for healing at this time? And how does that look? And so I just, I created a really great environment for healing. And so, yeah, physically how that looked was I, I actually went back to really simple work. Uh, I downshifted out of the industry that I was in. I was, I was a restaurant owner. And I, I quit the restaurant business in, in the ownership role. I went back to bartending. I created four nights a week bartending job that was really well paid. And I devoted the rest of my free time to movement, meditation, reading, and good healthcare practices. And then I, I built a team around me. I started practicing yoga often, meditation, acupuncture. And then I started training with my first teacher, which was in biofield energy healing, which was a very clinical approach to you know, maybe what some people would call Reiki. And that was a, you know, my teacher was trained in a three-year program in Langara College in Vancouver and like accredited and, and it was very clinical. And that was kind of my first foray into expanding my own skill set, ultimately working with her so I could heal and then that I could start practicing. And so the container was beautiful. Yeah, it was really, it was really great. And then after that, I took, I took five months out and I went and lived for the summer. I took the summer off. I went and lived on a farm in Portugal and I connected to nature and I practiced meditation and movement every day. I pulled the plug on my life, basically. I was like, how, how can I really support myself on this human journey? Yeah. And I, I guess during that time, did you discover the whole healing modality of breathwork and how that was really resonant with you? And how I, I'm sure at that time you wanted to really start teaching breathwork to people. Yeah, so it was a really slow, steady process. I quit drinking. I, I changed my diet and went very clean and, and moved into a paleo diet. I was really structured and rigid with myself. And it wasn't until probably a year later that I actually found my breathwork teacher, who's a gentleman called Robin Clements. And I started studying with him. I'd already had a huge amount of experience in, in trauma awareness. And I've done a variety of different courses, including some courses in Chinese medicine and Chinese massage. So when I arrived into the world of breathwork, I already had a great understanding of the nervous system. I've studied the work of you know, Dr. Peter Levine and Stephen Porges. I was aware of a lot of different modalities. And then when breathwork landed, it was like the missing piece. For me, it just brought everything that I'd already studied together. And it was like the hub of the wheel. It was the center. I embraced it. That was it. I just dived in. I was like, let's do this. This is it. Like, this is the answer for me in this moment. Yeah. And then I guess at that point, I mean, at what point did you want to start bringing breathwork to people? It had such a great impact on you and you saw such transformation along with all the other modalities that you were practicing. I mean, there was, I guess it just became something natural for you. So I guess the want and the desire to share that the teaching was immediate yeah. and training, training under Robin was, was beautiful because it gave me an opportunity to recognize, um, the requirement to slow down and even now uh that's still something he reminds me to do is to continue to stay steady and humble and slow 
with my path and and the recognition is you know he's been teaching breath for a very long time and he's been practicing and using it for a very long time and so i i love to share these teachings and i just always check in with myself am i doing it in a steady and integral way Mm -hmm. so whilst the desire was there and it's still there i'm still so stoked on breath i'm really i'm really slowing it down and 2020 is a year of consolidation for me of like writing more manuals and getting deeper into the material and creating more content firstly before you know, training more practitioners or bring more practitioners through our, our training program. That's fantastic. And let's get into a little bit about like how breathwork works. You know, I, I'm, some mm. of my listeners are already familiar with some of breathing techniques. I actually had a, a pranayama teacher whom I had on the podcast, one of my first podcast interviews that I did. It was actually really good. And I actually enrolled in some of her classes. So I've been learning some pranayama from her. And that's really been helpful for me in terms of becoming more into a parasympathetic setting. And I've done some breath work in in the past, not a whole lot, but it's been amazingly profound in terms of what I experienced. Uh, You could definitely feel the energy movements throughout your whole body. And that's just to me, is just fascinating. Just from breathing, you can elicit such a powerful response. Talk to us about what it's doing and how you evoke the breathwork potential in our bodies and moving energy. So I think the, the first point of going into for me is the recognition of the nervous system and the endocrine system. So I love studying body systems. And the first one for me to really touch upon is the idea that our endocrine system, which is our, our glands, changes our blood chemistry. And as an example, the most profound one would be the adrenal glands. Like that's what a lot of people have heard about. And so adrenaline, when it punches through our bloodstream, it actually creates a huge amount of strength, resilience, and it also changes our brain state. So it shuts down our neo and prefrontal cortexes and the gateway for that's the amygdala. And so when that area is closed, we no longer have such a capacity for empathy or compassion. Now, the reason for that is so we can outrun a tiger and outrun our friends. We don't want to be caring about them. We want to be caring about ourselves. And so this is an evolutionary pathway. And it's really important because it's allowed us to stay safe in potentially threatening environments. Now, the endocrine system is paired to the nervous system. And the nervous system is directly paired to our breathing. And so on our inhale, we actually activate. We turn everything on a little bit in our glands. So our adrenaline response becomes a little fuller. And on our exhale, we actually relax and our whole endocrine system downshifts. And what we're talking about here is the sympathetic nervous system being our inhale and the parasympathetic nervous system being our exhale. And so these two are always working in harmony. I'm inhaling, activating, and I'm exhaling, relaxing. Now, the rhythm and balance of my breath is going to change which branch of my nervous system is more or less active, which is going to change how my glands are responding. And so if I start to pant really shallow, I'm creating an activation response and that's going to shift my adrenal response, which is going to change my brain state. So right there, we can understand my breathing is changing my blood chemistry and my blood chemistry is changing the whole sensations of my body, including which areas of my brain are active or inactive. So in that moment, I've just demonstrated that breathing changes thinking. So the profound impact of our breath is huge. huge. And beyond that, if my breathing is only capable of operating in one way, i.e. a shallow pant, (laughs) I'm always in an adrenal response. 
And so I'm living in fight or flight. And that was my experience after the avalanche. I was stuck uh, in a one type of breathing pattern, right? And so what did I do? I numbed it with alcohol. And we could numb it with anything. But when my breath pattern is stuck, I'm only living in one state. When my breath pattern is fluid and dynamic, I can live in all states. I can be relaxed. And I can be aggressive and charged if I'm surfing. Or I can be very, very calm if I'm cognitive. I can be socially engaged with someone. Now, my breathing is going to reflect shifts in my blood chemistry. The beauty of being able to live in all ways is available to us if our breathing is dynamic. And so I love breathwork because it allows us to create more dynamism in the breath. We release holding or tension in the fascia, in the muscles, in the whole nervous system. And we allow people to be able to breathe in all different ways so they can live in all different ways. No, well said. Thank you. That was a really great explanation. I like to remind people, it's like breathing is the one thing that our bodies can do both consciously and unconsciously. And so it's just a beautiful thing to think about that and, and how it works as you just described. Totally. So I love that. I love that level of awareness. It is the one body system that we, we have a choice over and also we don't have to. And so in that moment, we recognize it is the gateway into the subconscious mind. Yes. Freudian psychology stating it's an iceberg theory of the mind. 10% is conscious, 90% is subconscious. What are those subconscious processes that are running essentially our choices in life? Our emotions are guiding us. Our emotions are, are basically deciding what choices we're going to make below that in the 90% subconscious. And so as you raise that level of awareness around breath, it becomes the doorway into the subconscious. It becomes the doorway into why am I motivating myself to do these things? Why am I living in this way? And so for me, that's where it's the most profound. Uh, I kind of think of it as the trump card. It's like, we can do anything in our lives. We can change our diet. We can change, you know, the fluid that we're drinking. We can change our exercise protocols. But we're breathing about 23 to 26,000 times a day. And beyond that, seven to eight hours of that subconscious, we're asleep. And so we are sleeping for a third of our day. If our breath pattern when we're asleep is shallow, we're simply reinforcing old pattern and we're not actually relaxing and resting. And so one of the big focuses that I work on with breathwork is how to change the subconscious breathing pattern. That is the pattern when we're asleep. Hey, Dr. Diva here. Thank you to all my listeners who supported my book and helped to make it a huge success. You all helped us hit number one in Barnes & Noble, number one in the categories of oncology, cancer, healing, and medical ebooks on Amazon, and number 21 in all of the Kindle store. If you haven't gotten your copy, you can find it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or booksmillion.com. Visit from doctortopatient.com to become a part of our growing community of health and wellness aficionados and to learn more. You're equating breathwork with as the road to the subconscious. And I think actually Freud actually said that dreams are actually the road and path to the subconscious. So it's interesting. Uh -huh. So I'm assuming there must be some correlation between dreaming and breath and, and breath work. 
Yeah, totally. So when, when Freud says that, he's really looking at dream states and he's looking at an altered or non-ordinary state of consciousness. And so it's really interesting that that, I believe, is speaking to theta brain state. Yeah. When we start to look at the different brain states, we can actually correlate certain breathing patterns with certain brain states. So when, as an example, we're in a high-tone parasympathetic nervous system state and our breath is connected and fluid, we know that the brain is now operating in theta. And when the brain's in theta, we have access to the subconscious material that would also be available to us in a dream state. And so there's a variety of other techniques that we can use to access those, that subconscious material. The essence is when we're in theta, our nervous system is incredibly neuroplastic. And what that means is it's malleable and changeable. And so we can essentially rewire old patterning and conditioning and subconscious beliefs, and we can release them. And I'm assuming this is how you can process buried emotions because of the fact that you're actually tapping into the subconscious with breath work. Exactly. So when we're looking at subconscious, we're saying this is something that my body has taken and it's buffered it and it's jammed it down inside me to deal with it at a later date. Now that's beautiful. What an amazing technique and, and technology that the human body has. I'm in a state of overwhelm. I'm going to take all of the stimulus and I'm going to submerge it into my system so that I can process it out. Now here's the key piece. We need to process it out. And so with breath work, what we have is a container and a technique and an opportunity to bring up those old emotions that we didn't have space to be with and to process them. So taking the example of my avalanche, when I was in the avalanche, I didn't have an opportunity to actually complete the trauma cycle because, hey, I'm still off the back of a mountain and I need to get home. And so it would only be getting home would actually give me the opportunity to process out that trauma. And so breathwork gave me a container and an opportunity to go into those big experiences that I had previously stored and buffered in my cells and tissues and to breathe into them and to relive them. So ultimately, yeah, I was reliving these big cathartic journeys in a super safe space, being guided by a quality and qualified practitioner. And in that moment, I was able to unearth this old stuff that was in me, relive it and feel it viscerally, feel the chemicals move through my body, and then relax and get complete on it so that it was no longer running in the background. And what I kind of think of is like trauma is like open windows. And the more unprocessed emotional experiences that we have jammed inside our body and buffered into our system, the more dysregulated we're going to be. And that will show up immediately in the breath. And so when we modulate and change breath pattern technique, we have an opportunity to bring up those experiences, bring them out of the subconscious, relive them, and then know that we're safe and complete. And essentially we close the window. It's no longer running in the background. And now we have more clarity in our life and we can choose how we're living in a totally different way. When these emotions resurface from the subconscious, do they manifest by just thoughts and patterns that may have been buried that, and, and memories that are just been put aside that are coming up? Or does it come up through somatic types of releases or both? Yeah, both and everything. And thank you for bringing that up. And I love your level of awareness around trauma and, and what we're speaking to here. Thank you. So it shows up in a variety of different ways, and it really depends on the, the, the quality of the, of the trauma. So as an example, it might be, a, in my case, an avalanche would be a very big physical experience. I relived all of the movement patterns, again, that kept me alive. Oh, my wow. heart rate climbed, my breath, my breath shifted, and there I was in a treatment room being, being, being observed by a, by a practitioner 
going and living this experience. And so when I've held space for someone that say had a, a near drowning, we would see that that would be the same. They would go through the same body movements of the near drowning. So these are big single traumatic experiences that we can speak to. And we really associate that as trauma. The deeper piece is the low level kind of insidious cultural or behavioral pieces that we may have grown up with. So an example of that would be big boys don't cry. Now, big boys don't cry is a super toxic thing to say to anybody. <laughs> and what it does, is it, it suppresses tears. And tears are a natural physical response to the release of emotion. And of course, men need to cry. The reason we have tears is so that we can create a physical change in our endocrine system. And so if we're suppressing tears, what we're going to find is that that's going to create some holding intention in the jaw. And that holding intention in the jaw is also going to spread into the thyroid and parathyroid. And what that will do is it will affect the quality of the exhale. And so the vocal cords, which is the, one of the diaphragms of the breath in the body, they'll slightly contract. And so what we see is when I read someone's breath, I'll hear there'll be a slight murmur in the vocal cords. It'll be like a, a bit like Darth Vader. Yeah. <laughs> and so what we're hearing is there's tension in the throat. Now, the reason there's tension in the throat is because that child was told that they couldn't express themselves. Uh -huh. So they developed over their childhood a capacity to create a maladaptive behavioral program. And now that's running. And so they continually don't express themselves. So how does that show up? Well, they, they don't speak their truth and they become basically filled with emotion, which will then lead to a huge outburst of potentially anger and rage. So what we're seeing with men is if we suppress our emotions, we're going to explode. And that's because we haven't been free to actually be with the sensation that's moving through us. And so that would be like one example of, of how someone would then release would be using the vibration of ohm or using sound or even primal screaming to release in an authentic way the throat to create more clarity in the vocal cords. And we would then hear that the breath is corrected. And then, then now the exhale is just falling. It would just be like a, and it would fall without control. There would just be ease on the exhale. And taking us back to that example that you were talking about, a person who is um, taught to not be able to express their emotions as a younger person or whatever reason, um, that's mm. a lot of years of just buried trauma. Does it take multiple breathwork sessions to like get over and reprogram that person? Yeah, that's a great question. So the, the, the power of working in non-ordinary states of consciousness creates massive neuroplasticity. Mm. And what I'm speaking to is pranayama, is not the style of breathwork I teach and practice in clinic. Now, I, I teach and practice pranayama as well, but those are conscious techniques. It's like inhale for four, hold for four, exhale for four, hold out for four. Right. That's very conscious. What I'm teaching is something totally different. We're using a technique that just allows a non-ordinary state of consciousness, essentially moving down into a theta or trance-like state. And we're then inviting a repatterning when essentially the body is totally neuroplastic, it's malleable. And so we can rapidly affect change in the area that we're holding or moving or speaking to, and it sets. Well, what happens is it shifts, it changes, and then it sets. So that pattern is gone. And it, it, it can be as rapid as, it, depending on the area, it can be as rapid as one session. And that's where this style of what we call conscious connected breathing and specifically clinical trauma-aware conscious connected breathing is incredibly powerful for repatterning subconscious beliefs and any unprocessed emotion that's held in the physical body. 
So the essence really in what breathwork entails is really getting someone into that deep, you know, faded state. And then that's where all the magic happens. Totally. That's it. And so we can teach conscious breathwork as much as we want. It will have an impact on the breath pattern. It will change it to some degree. And of course, it's going to be going to be healthy and beneficial. However, if we want to create really deep, profound, immediate change, it's been my experience and what I've witnessed with all of my clients is that when they drop into the theta state, when they're in the altered state of consciousness, the repatterning is so much more rapid and effective. And also what I said is it sticks. It's done. It's like there's no need to practice it anymore. We just created the change and they walk out of there, out of the clinic room with a totally different breath pattern. And then they come back and see me the next week. It's the same. And then we do another profound shift and they walk out and it's the same again. And so, yeah, we can repattern ourselves ultimately back to a full, healthy, dynamic breath. And, and it's profound. Is it advisable for a person to do this kind of breath work on their own or with a certified practitioner or someone who's an expert like yourself? I mean, what's the best route? Yeah, thank you. It's, I, I do not, there's a lot of people that are offering like online courses or potentials for different breath work. I'm really clear in my boundaries on this one. And it is, an, it is essential that someone practices with a trauma-aware clinical practitioner until they have their own breath practice in such a way that they can safely hold space for themselves and all of the emotion that's going to be coming up. And normally what we'd say is that's 10 sessions. We'd like to see a client practice with us for 10 sessions. Now, it might be less and it might be more depending on the other work and the regulation of the nervous system and their capacity and resilience. Mm -hmm. Now, a practitioner is gonna be able to guide someone on that journey my aim is to make myself obsolete with my clients. My aim is to, to get every client to a place where they're self-regulating because there's enough people out here that need the work. Like I have, I'm like fully booked for weeks and I, I don't need more clients. It's like, so the model is how can I get someone to the space where they're practicing it on their own? So it's, a, it's essentially an investment model. Um, it's really unpopular with a lot of other practitioners because ultimately, you know, there's no repeat business. It's like right. you just freed yourself. And, and I love that because people then just become ambassadors. They're like, yeah, I do this like three days a week and it's awesome. And I'm self-regulated. I'm living to my fullest potential, but they then become an ambassador for me. So I work with people usually over like a three or four month period. And then what I've noticed is they want to train with me. So that's been like the next, the next kind of tear and, 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 and piece that's been coming through, which has been amazing. That's so awesome. yeah, in answer to your question, very clearly, I recommend one-on-one -on -one clinical trauma aware breath work. And and finding that person that can really hold space for you. And you know what, the truth of it is, I might not be your practitioner. I, I, might, I might just not be the person that's gonna work for you. I, I can recommend a variety of other people that might work for you. Gender will play a role. I might remind you of your father, that's gonna trigger the hell out of you, we don't want that. And so finding someone that really, it's like dating, you know, like you find your breath worker that's gonna work for you and then you establish a therapeutic relationship and then you continue over time. And it's a wonderful journey. Right, and after they're completed with their sessions that the practitioner has recommended, um, I guess there's homework to do. Do they need to continue this for an indefinite period of time or is their breathwork patterns shifted where they don't necessarily have to consciously change anything anymore? Yeah, thank you. So there's, there's two pieces that come through. The first one is we're unpacking the suitcase of trauma. We're getting rid of all of the stuff that we, we might've carried. Right. And, and once that's done, then it's just the maintenance program. So then it's just like, okay, I've created clarity in my body systems. I can breathe dynamically and fully. Maybe once a week is going to be great for my maintenance. 
Now, if I'm pushing a big deadline or I'm going on a trip or I've got like, you know, some conflict in my life somewhere, I might choose to breathe more often than that. Now, what I'm encouraging is people to develop the quality of deep listening within themselves. They become their own medicine. They become their own teacher. They're like, okay, you know, I'm starting to feel a little bit stressed. I probably need to breathe an extra day this week. And it could be as little as 15 minutes. It's just going to regulate the whole system. It's going to train the sympathetic and the parasympathetic back to that fullness of expression of breath. So yeah, it's, it's sort of two. It's like unpack all of, the, all of the old trauma and then let's just have some steady maintenance of myself. And for our listeners who are mainly in the US, how would, if they were to locate you and work with you, do you do virtual training or do you just do basically one-on-one in-person training? Yeah, thanks so much. Yeah, I have a really clear boundary around that. I only work in person. And, yeah. and the reason, I know a lot of people have said, oh, you, you know, like YouTube, like get on YouTube and get on, get on a, do, package up your offering and put it out there on an online course. And I'm just like, yeah, those are all great things to do. There's a lot of teachers that are teaching pranayama in that way. And that's really, you know, maybe safe and maybe not. What I'm really clear on is when I work with someone, the essentials is to provide proper containment. Yeah. And for me, containment looks like hands-on. And so I run retreats here in Bali and I work in clinic in Bali. And if someone wants to work with me, I invite them to come to tropical paradise. I mean, like, how, <laughs> like that's okay. I also do work in, in Canada. Yeah, I was living and working in BC and I do make trips back to BC. And again, I love working with people in a therapeutic way over a series of time. Right. But I also do a five-day deep dive. And what that looks like is we do, we do 10 breathwork journeys. So 10 sessions in five days. Here in a, in a basically, I, I rent a really nice high-end villa with a swimming pool. We all come together and we just go on this process. And so I run, I'll be running a few of those a year. So Feb and November this year. And that's, that's a great way for someone to come, to be in a really safe container, to be held, to, to see you know, to have a swimming pool and great nutritious food and to be in this environment where they can actually create beautiful neuroplastic change within their system and learn from other people that are going through the same process. We really learn in, in circle and we learn in community in that way. And sharing our own stories of our own experiences is really part of the deeper teaching. And so I love the clinical practices of one-on-ones. It provides such a great quality containment. I also love teaching group, small groups and we, we limit our groups at 16 total in the, in the container. Mm-hmm. And another question that came up comes up to me is that if you're doing these um, intensive five days retreats, is that a lot for the body? I mean, doesn't their body get overwhelmed with all that subconscious material and trauma coming to the surface release, or is it just the exact opposite? They just basically feel so much better because of all the stuff that comes out. Yeah. So thank you. The essence is ensuring that everybody gets complete. So breathwork can be very re-traumatizing. What that means is it brings up material. And then it's in the field and in the surface, but we never got complete on it. Now, the neuroscience of this is really essential to understand. When we're surfacing something out of the limbic brain, out of the emotional centers of the brain, and we're just bringing it into the forefront, it is essential we move into a very high tone in the parasympathetic nervous system, deep relaxation and theta, so that we can make sense of it. And if we don't do that, all we've done is re-traumatize. And that's the danger of some of the yoga asana practices and some of the meditation practices that are taught online or taught by ultimately practitioners that don't understand nervous system regulation. If the client doesn't move into a really deep rest and relax phase at the end of the session, there's an opportunity that they've simply been re-traumatized. And so polyvagal theory looks like a bell curve. Basically, we start the session slow. 
we climb up to release some unprocessed emotions, and then we drop all the way down really deeply. And what we've done is we've measured heart rate variability. When we measure HRV, we can look that HRV goes down the pan in the middle of the session. Like people are really going through it. And what we see is at the end of the session, the HRV is going through the roof. What we're seeing is people have had amazing coherence. So what's happening is the whole body systems are taking all of that unprocessed emotion and they're making sense of it all everywhere, including in the higher areas of the brain, the hippocampus that records time. Ultimately, what they're doing is saying, this event is no longer running currently. It is now in the past and I don't need it to affect my perception of how my nervous system sees the world and how I integrate information from outside of myself into my inner body. What that does for the vagus nerve of the vagal tone is it drops it every time. And so what we're seeing is all of the organ systems start to rebalance because the vagus nerve, which is wandering and controlling all of those systems, is now upregulated. And the reason it's upregulated is because HRV is directly impacted by breathing. And as the breath pattern shifts, HRV shifts, as the HRV shifts, we're seeing that neuroplastically in the brain, there's now neural pathways are opened up. Hebb's law is an example, is neurons that fire together, wire together. We've created new neural pathways in that deep theta state of relaxation. And so in answering your question, people have gone through these big, profound shifts. And as long as they're entering into a long relaxation state at the end, everything is setting and getting complete in a really healthy way. My concern is breathwork practitioners that would be opening up big states of trauma and not allowing a long enough relaxation phase. And that could be, that could be potentially very dangerous and very challenging for people that are coming into, into spaces of breathwork. And so part of my mandate is to, to ensure that people understand the branches of the nervous system and understand neuroendocrinology in such a way that they can div- deliver breathwork in a really safe way for, for the clients. And I, I think you're, you just brought up some really interesting and salient points. People are like, well, this is kind of woo woo stuff. Right. And, you know, and a lot of people in the Western society, that's how they feel and, and think of anything that's unrelated to being prescribed a pill. Um, uh-huh. And it's interesting because there is what you're describing is there is objective data. You know, the HRV is a huge objective piece of the puzzle where you could visually see the improvements after the breathwork session. And that's how I modulate my healing. If I'm doing anything and I want to see the end results, look at my HRV. If my HRV has improved and increased and whatever I've been doing, that sets the stage for myself in the future and in terms of my healing outcomes. And so thanks for bringing that up. I really, that was, uh, you know, that really case in point is I want to bring in topics that have a scientific background or have some Thank sort you. of measurable improvements that's objective in nature. Yeah, that's beautiful. And I'll speak really clear to that. Like it's, it, breathwork can be super woo-woo. Like someone can deliver it with that lens for sure. <laughs> that's not my way. I have a degree in economics. Like I'm super left brain logical. And when someone delivers something to me, I want to know why. And there's that part of me that's incessant on like, why? And so not only with HRV, but also when we start to measure cortisol and adrenaline levels over baseline over time, we we can also develop those metrics. And so this is really profound. The challenge, there's two challenges that are being faced right now. The first one is you can't package it up and sell it as a pill. There's no repeat business model. Everybody is freeing themselves with it and it's free. And once I teach a client to do it, it's like they're gone. They're living the best life. And I'm seeing my clients absolutely expand into fullness. And it's amazing to witness. Such and great. so 
it comes against, you know, the current Western business models because yeah. ultimately we're teaching humans to heal humans. And, right. and I love that. And, and that is ultimately what is going to create this shift in all of us so that we can live in a more balanced way. And so we can relate to ourselves and also to each other and to the planet in a much more balanced and harmonious way, because we understand the interconnections of all things and the relatedness of all things. Right. Edward, this has been fascinating. Thank you so much for coming. And we're, we're actually running out of time. But before we depart, I wanted to ask you a couple things for our listeners. One, if our listeners are interested in looking for a breathwork practitioner that's in the area, is there a database or directory online that they can search? Yeah, so the, the GBPA, the Global Breathwork Practitioner Alliance, is the sort of self-created body of breathworkers that's, uh, that's regulatory. So that's one avenue, the GBPA, and then also the, the IBF, International Breathwork Foundation or Federation. So those are two resources, and they're not very – I mean, honestly, this is a very fringe and unregulated industry. Right. The essence for me is like find a breathwork practitioner, and then the key, the key piece is really asking them the questions around what's their level of knowledge around trauma. So – Ultimately, do they understand the two branches of the nervous system and, and almost interview that person? I mean, like if I'm going to do any work with any healer, I'm going to ask them some key questions around like what's the level of expertise and understanding. So, yeah, I think really giving people agency and power. Sure, I could be on a website and someone could endorse me, but ultimately, like, let's get everybody feeling it for themselves. Does this person hold an integral space? How do they present in business? How do I book them? Like, is it like a phone conversation, email? Is it an online booking system? All of these pieces will add up to tell us, like, is this an esoteric practice of, of someone, you know, that really doesn't understand the grounded science? And are they going to be able to guide me in a, in a healthy way? So, yeah, really ultimately giving agency back to the listeners and saying, like, you guys figure it out and you guys choose. He's going to really serve you in a good way. Be aware of the questions you need to ask. That would be sort of my, my, my prayer there. Awesome. And if people have questions or want to reach out to you and actually travel to Bali to do some breath work. What's the best way for those people to do so? Yeah. Thanks so much. Um, I think funnily enough here in Bali, the, the platform of Instagram seems to be the most popular. That's also a great way for me to deliver a lot of my content. And so um, I use Instagram to deliver, you know, reading lists or information, my morning practices and some videos on occasion. So my Instagram is just my name, which is Edward and my last name Dangerfield. And, and feel free to message me. I mean, I'm really happy to receive messages from people. As you know, my healing journey has been through trauma, depression, suicide, alcoholism. I've been in those places. I'm really happy to say I live a really joyful and useful life over here. Something that has taken me some years to cultivate. And I'm really happy to help support and guide people on that journey as well to ultimately self-actualization and freedom. Thank you so much, Edward. It was such a great pleasure to have you on our podcast. Oh, it's an honor to be here. Thank you so much.